1984, there was a newly married couple whose camp was, I think, right about where that camper behind me is, is sitting right now. And, uh, well, one, one member of this new couple had some association or knowledge of a certain Ozark, Missouri uh, area tradition called the Shiveree. But the other occupant of that vehicle had no concept of that whatsoever. It was a harsh way to learn. I thought that my brethren had lost their minds totally. I want to say that we witnessed last night uh, a new tradition being implemented here with the newlywed game. Far better. Let's go with that one. <clears throat> We're going to talk about relationship evangelism in this segment today. I'm going to begin by reading from 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of, your, of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. That is not the, the subject of husbands and wives is not the subject for our discussion. However, the principles of our conduct as Christians, that is our subject. And I have warned you, and I will warn you again, this subject is not for sissies, and it am not, is not, ain't for hypocrites neither, and I most certainly do want to step on everybody's toes, and I, absolutely, I, I want you to take this personally, and what I ask of you is no more than I ask of myself. We're going to talk about what some have called relationship evangelism. Let's define relationship evangelism. The Christian has been provided with two primary means to win the world to Christ. First and foremost is the message of the gospel of Christ, which Paul said in Romans 1.16 that he was not ashamed of the gospel of Christ and attributed to it rightfully the power that it has to do the work that we're we're seeking with this. And then as I read 1 Peter 3, 1 and 2, we also have the manifestation of the gospel in the life of the Christian. And that is where you're going to make the sale. That's where it's going to happen. Before they ever consider what you say, they're going to look at what you do. Relationship evangelism, then, is adapting these two means to the best advantage for the person we are seeking to lead to Christ. A process of developing meaningful relationships with people. So there's work involved in this. There's effort. We must allow the beauty of the gospel to first be demonstrated in our lives, and thereby we build these bridges that is, we develop relationships with people, with the prospects that we hope to influence with the gospel. We build a bridge to allow the traffic, that is, the gospel, to flow freely and naturally. 
And this involves gradually developing relationships with those who are lost. We have an unlimited pool of resources, a pool of contacts every day. We have family, we have friends, we have neighbors, we have co-workers, etc. So what we do, the, the good advice or the normal advice, is to start with those closest to us and then working outward in concentric circles of concern. The development of relationships <clears throat> involves several things, and it is progressive. You have, obviously, first of all, the initial contact with the person. Then the process of becoming better acquainted with that person. And as was mentioned in our first uh, hour, it might mean chopping wood. It might mean uh, emptying a, a truck full of wheat. In other words, being a servant, being a friend, all of those things come first. Then sharing the gospel, your personal sharing of the gospel with them. And only after that, the witness of the body of Christ regarding that same gospel and various forms of exposure to the gospel and the invitation to obey the gospel. <clears throat> so relationship evangelism is where we have enough love, enough concern for the lost that we are willing to make the effort to develop these relationships with them so that both by word and example we can share Christ with them. Well, how, uh, how good, uh, what, what good is this method? What value does this approach have over others? Let's talk about the value of relationship evangelism. First of all, its effect on our own lives. The benefits for us if we engage in this activity. Relationship evangelism requires that our spiritual growth and development be what it should be. As I mentioned earlier, other forms of evangelism, like preaching, door knocking, correspondence courses, or things of that nature, Unfortunately, these things can be utilized by hypocrites. Well, this method, you can't do that. So we don't throw away those other things. We keep doing those other things, but we're stressing this approach, not only in the hope that we will reach more souls and influence more for the gospel, but that it will prom prompt us to be the people we should be. To be effective, relationship evangelism means that our lives are an open book. Paul spoke of an epistle of Christ known and read by all men, 2 Corinthians 3, 2 and 3. So by adopting this approach of evangelism, it will motivate us to draw closer to God, it will keep our spiritual fervor strong, it will make us better Christians. That's a lot of benefit just for us if we do this. And then, of course, we want to consider the effect of this method on the lives of non-Christians. 
Relationship evangelism gets us out of the church building into the lives of those who are lost, where we can be salt, where we can be light. The salt has to mix, has to influence that food to make it taste better. We have to be that. We humbly demonstrate a better way of life and adopting this approach to evangelism can, yes, make our neighborhoods a better place in which to live. Yes, it can impact and improve the moral environment in our places of employment. Let's talk about the success of this method. We have to be honest with ourselves. The methods, the things that we have traditionally utilized over the years may not be working the same now. They, they, just, they just aren't. We do have to adapt to the changing conditions. It used to be, it used to be that the majority of Americans were of a Christian background. They may not have been uh, practicing, that is, they may not have been members of churches or attending, but even though they were non-Christian, so to speak, the basic Christian morals and beliefs, a belief in God, belief that this book is the Word of God, belief that there was a judgment coming, that there was, there was the concern about, about hellfire, those were things that were tenets of the culture. And in cases in times past, a simple presentation of the gospel was often all that was needed. But today the majority is what can be called secular or other religion background. In the first session I had with the, uh, the high school and college, uh, we, what we did in that first hour is we did a comparative of world religions. We compared... Uh, Hinduism, Buddhism, Confucianism, Shinto, various world religions with Christianity. Because that's the reality. Those are our neighbors. That's the culture now. At, at the very least, they are worldly minded. They are not holding to Christian beliefs. They don't follow the, the moral compass that we follow. And so, because of all of that, there, re, there is required a lot of preparation of the soil. There's more work involved. Then the seed can be planted. Now, something else from the past regarding us, Christians. It used to be that most Christians knew how to easily develop relationships with other people, non-Christians. Many Christians had close friends, associates, and, and a lot of them were of this kind of Christian background, but even those that were not. But in such a case, because you had that relationship, it was easy for the gospel to flow. Easy to discuss religious differences over a period of time without breaking all contact after a few disagreements. 
But due to the hindrances of the circumstances of the now, and we will talk about that a little bit more later, many Christians today don't even have any close friends, those of different faiths. And it appalls me sometimes to see that even within congregations, you do not see that. I'm amazed sometimes when I look at a congregation and I notice that the only time those people look at each other, talk to each other, spend time together, is when they're in that room. I've witnessed Christians, members of the same congregation, when they're out in public, that seemed embarrassed to even acknowledge each other's presence. We're losing the ability to relate to people. Relationship evangelism forces us to take these changing conditions into consideration. There was a survey that was done by the Institute for American Church Growth. They asked over 10,000 people this question. And again, it was broad-based. It was you know, talking about whatever a denomination they might be a part of. But the question that was asked, what was responsible for your coming to Christ and to this church? 2% said they had a special need. 3% said they just walked in. 6% said they liked the minister. 1% said they visited there as in I was traveling and I just happened to stop in. 5% said that they liked the Bible classes. 0.5% said that they attended a gospel meeting. 3% only, 3% said, I like the programs. I'm interested in that one because of all the emphasis that's placed on, on all the entertainment and all of those things that seem to be so important for drawing people in. But when you ask them, well, that's only accounting for about 3% of their continuing and abiding interest. So what is left? 79% said a, a friend or a relative invited me. That should tell us something. I'm not suggesting that relationship evangelism is the only way to do personal work. Many souls have been brought to Christ through other means, and it may be, it may be that you're not really suited to use those other methods or this method. But relationship evangelism is a viable option and it takes into consideration the forces which hinder our effectiveness in evangelism. It makes us better Christians in the process of trying to influence the lost. And it is an easy, or it should be, an easy, natural, less confrontational way to share the gospel with others. And it is more likely to be successful in leading souls to Christ and keeping them faithful to the Lord. I would like to consider some of the forces that either, whether perceived so or, or truly so, hinder our effectiveness in uh, evangelism. And I begin with a story, and this is fictitious. I want you to understand this is purely fictional. 
It's from a book called Lifestyle Evangelism by Joseph Aldrich. It's on pages 15 and 16 of that book. It's a story of a conversation between Jesus and Gabriel, the angel Gabriel, when Jesus ascends and goes back to heaven. After Jesus ascended to heaven, the angel Gabriel approached him and said, Master, you must have suffered terribly for men down there. I did, he said. And, continued Gabriel, do they all know about how you love them and what you did for them? Oh no, said Jesus, not yet. Right now only a handful of people in Palestine know. Gabriel was perplexed. Then what have you done to let everyone know about your love for them? Jesus said, I have asked Peter, James, John, and a few more friends to tell other people about me. Those who are told will in turn tell still other people about me, and my story will be spread to the farthest reaches of the globe. Ultimately, all of mankind will have heard about my life and what I have done. Gabriel frowned and looked rather skeptical. He knew well what poor stuff men were made of. But what if Peter and James and John grow weary? What if the people who come after them forget? What if way down in the 20th century, dating of the writing of the book, people just don't tell others about you? Haven't you made any other plans? Jesus answered, I haven't made any other plans. I'm counting on them. Again, that's from uh, Lifestyle Evangelism by Joseph Aldrich. It's fictitious, obviously, but it does drive the point home. So it is for us. All these centuries later, Jesus still has no other plan. He counted on his early disciples, and they delivered. He's counting on you and me. Have we done as well? Now, before we succumb to another guilt trip, I want to consider some reasons why we may appear to be ineffective when compared to the apostles. And in so doing, my purpose is not to excuse ourselves, but we need to understand some of the forces, some of the influences which have clearly hindered our effectiveness, beginning with so many people, so many people. We live in a world where we come face to face with more people than we can easily relate to. A casual stroll down the street or through a store brings us face to face with dozens of people every minute. Every day we come into contact with more people than we can possibly relate to in meaningful ways. Now this fact can easily result in crippling our ability to relate to people. Since we cannot possibly recognize or relate to everyone, what are we tempted to do? Relate to no one. Before long, we begin to adopt an attitude of isolation. Eventually, we lose the ability to effectively carry on meaningful relationships. Uh, I just happened to be leaving camp at some point in this week, heading out from camp over this direction, and I don't even know who my wife was talking to, but I overheard a remark that she made which I planned 
to remember, and I'm glad I just did, and I'm going to share it with you. She said, insulation, not isolation. I thought that was a good way to put it. To understand that we have, we have protection. We do have the Word of God. We have the power of the Holy Spirit to aid us as we go through this life, as we navigate through those rapids and around those rocks. We have all that to help us. But let us not get into this, this pattern of behavior, this mindset in which we just circle the wagons and sit there and twiddle our thumbs and say, well, if they're smart enough, they'll come and find us. This can have very adverse effect on evangelism. For a meaningful relationship is one of the most successful means of providing an avenue for the gospel, which is what we're talking about in this hour. But many Christians get caught up in this attitude of isolationism. Often they do not even have any significant contacts with non-Christians, even at times with Christians, other Christians. And they are therefore unable to relate to others in any type of a redemptive manner. So we're, we, we need to be on guard against this. all these people. Instead of doing this, we need to reach out to this one. And then they'll reach out to that one. Second, life is too fast, too complicated. Despite inventions to save time, we are busier than ever. Jobs change, people move, congestion grows, traffic jams, telephones ring constantly, TVs drone on and on, we are held captive by schedules and the demands of others. We find ourselves unable to slow down in this world. Living such hectic lives, it's easy for one to feel there's just no room there's just no time for this enterprise called evangelism. So one might feel that to do so would be the straw that breaks the camel's back. So guess what? Evangelism of any sort is just left out of our hectic schedules. Third, Exposure to limited evangelism models. Even when we want to do something, we are often given limited options, such as just inviting our friends to the services, to the meetings of the church. Now, understand, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, if they come and this is what is coming out of your mouths, they will be convicted by that. So, yes, if they want to come, bring them. But the meetings of the church are for the church. If, if our only method of outreach is inviting someone to come to church with us, we are in trouble. If that is our congregation's view of evangelism, we're not getting it done. Now there's other things, going around the neighborhood, knocking on doors of complete strangers, cold calls. Again, we don't, 
dismiss these things. We consider the 2% that that survey reveals. You do meet the Larry Wilsons like Charles Fry and I met in Crescent City, California when we were having an evangelistic meeting for a weekend and we made teams of people to go around and we wanted to knock on every door in that community which at that time was smaller than it is now. And Charles and I were assigned the, the neighborhood right around where Kimber and I lived at the time. Two houses around the corner, we knocked on this door. And a man greeted us at the door. He, was, he had one of those nice big beards that I admire so much, those biker kind of beards. And we introduced ourselves and what we were all about, and his jaw almost hit the floor. And he pointed to, he didn't have very much as far as furniture. He pointed to a, a five-gallon bucket overturned in the middle of his kitchen. He said, I was just sitting right there on that bucket, right just now, praying to God that he would send me somebody like you. And we learned that Larry, as a teenager, uh, growing up in Arkansas, had been, had been baptized and had been a part of the church, but in his young adult life, he went out to San Francisco and he got involved in the 60s, heavily involved in the 60s. Now he had learned that he had a daughter he didn't even know about and she was going to be coming to live with him because her mother had died. Uh, he'd gone through all the things with addiction and getting out of addiction. He now had diabetes that he had to deal with. He was wanting to get his life back in order with the Lord, and he is now still walking with the Lord to the, as far as I know. So there are those that we find, but that's a rarity. We don't throw that out, that method. But some people are not comfortable at all with that method, as we well know. And besides that, some of these methods involve a script that you read from at the door, and I just can't bode with that. I'm sorry, but I can't. It's got to be real. I don't, for instance, want to go through the checklist and when it says, okay, when you get here, they're going to want to talk about this probably, but here's the way that you divert and don't talk about that. Don't waste time talking about that. If they want to talk about the Ten Commandments, just skip over that. I don't go there. I don't do that. I want to talk about this. If they want to talk about it, I want to talk about it with them. But there's limitations to these things. It's not to say that such methods have not worked or will not work for some. These options do work for some, but not all Christians are even suited for the particular approaches given. These options do reach some non-believers, but many are even repelled by them. I mean, you know how you feel when certain people come knocking on your door. That's how they feel when you come knocking on theirs. Because of this, People lose their evangelistic zeal because they're offered these limited... They want to do something, and this is what they're shown to do. And when the study is over or the campaign is over, whatever it is, they lose their zeal. We have people who are not... They don't really have the ability to teach, being made to feel as though they're not as dedicated to the Lord as those who do teach... People going out to teach before they're really prepared to teach and maybe even doing much harm in the process or the harm of a false sense of preparedness emanating from the reliance upon that method. 
people who are unable to teach not being shown how they can greatly assist those who are able to teach. Efforts in evangelism being carried out without being accomplished by a demonstration of the truth of the gospel in our own lives. These are things we have to overcome, these and similar problems. <clears throat> I told Jeremy I was going to uh, plug his book. I got, I think, I had permission. Yeah, okay. I was almost getting ready to skip it because I'm concerned about the old clock, but I don't know if you've seen Jeremy's book on mutual edification, Able to Instruct One Another. Well, I, I'm gleaning from that and incorporating some of this into our thoughts here. I think sometimes our wrong concept of mutual edification illustrates the point I'm trying to make. Jeremy in his book defines well mutual edification this way. The practice of encouraging and utilizing all male members of a congregation in the public preaching and teaching who are so gifted and qualified. That's from Able to Instruct One Another by Jeremiah A. Morris, page 8. Some key phrases here, like all. So we do give opportunity for them to, to develop themselves. But then we also have who are so gifted and qualified that we recognize that we all have different bents. We all have different strengths, different weaknesses. We don't want to try to pound a square peg into a round hole. We want to encourage. We want to utilize. It must be active, not passive. It's a privilege, not a responsibility. It's an opportunity, not a right. Yes, we do want to invest in the right bank and watch that savings grow. But when you come right down to it, regarding evangelism, the most effective method of evangelism is where the verbalization of the gospel is preceded by the incarnation of the gospel, that is, the demonstration of the gospel in our lives before we try, we try to preach it to others. And whenever I'm thinking about this, I think about a, a man that I knew growing up. Uh, he was a member of the church in Lebanon, Oregon. His name was Walter, but his nickname was Muscles because in his youth that characterized him to the T. He was a man who could go into the corral and grab the horse around the neck and literally wrestle a horse to the ground. He was a man who never took a gun or a bow and arrows when he hunted his deer. He took only a hunting knife and he pursued that deer until it stopped running and then he dispatched it with his knife. And as sometimes is the stereotypical thing for a man with a nickname such as that, this muscle maybe didn't work so well. But in his home congregation, there was no member of that congregation who was personally responsible for influencing more people and getting them in the door and becoming a part of that congregation than that man. Until we apply and reveal other options, we will continue to discourage a good majority of the brethren. This is why many quit 
making any evangelistic effort. Another factor which can hinder our evangelism is misunderstanding separation. We kind of touched on this when we were talking about isolationism. Many Christians misunderstand the principle of separation, where we are to be separate from the world, 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 18, but this does not mean isolation, 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 13. If it means that, we have to go out of this world, Paul says. But I fear that many Christians tend to isolate themselves from the world in the name of separation. This is a way of losing our influence. We can influence people without losing our influence. Again, the salt. That's the principle. We are the salt of the earth. Salt has to get out of the container and mix with the food to be effective. Well, no, we don't have to engage in sin, but we still have to have contact with the sinner as Jesus did, as Paul did. And then, finally, we have the credibility gap. This is a great hindrance. In some cases, there is this imbalance between the verbalization and the incarnation of the gospel. The lifestyle of the Christian is inconsistent with the message that that Christian is presenting. And when this happens, people are likely to think, what you are speaks so loudly I can't hear what you're saying. And in this way, a credibility gap is formed. I have uh, Cherokee heritage. My grandmother was, was a Cherokee from the eastern band of the Cherokee out of uh, North Carolina. And lately I've been reading a few books related to the history of those people. And I wanted to share a quote by a chief his name was Corn Tassel. He was affectionately known as Old Tassel. Uh, the name Corn Tassel, if you happen to have any uh, Cherokee friends, became a surname among the, the Cherokee. But this man was educated, was literate in the English language, and he was also one of the most beloved Cherokee chiefs. And this, this uh, bit of a speech that he gave, I'm going to read to you, was at a peace treaty conference in North Carolina in May 1777. They are his words as recorded by the journalist William Tarham. But the thing I want us to understand is that this was a peace conference taking place after treaty upon treaty upon treaty had already previously been made and broken by the white man. And in fact, while this particular conference was going on, Secretly, some men from Georgia had been instructed to, while they're away from their farms, guys, you go in and squat, take possession of all their stuff. And while that was going on, this is what Corntassel was saying. Indeed, much has been advanced on the want of what you term civilization among the Indians. And many proposals have been made to us to adopt your laws, your religion, your manners, and your customs. But we confess that we do not yet see the propriety or the practicability of such a reformation, and should be better pleased with beholding the good effect of these doctrines in your own practices than hearing you talk about them or reading your papers upon such things. He said it, brothers. 
He said what we're talking about here. But you know, in spite of all of the forked tongue speaking that was going on, many of the Cherokees did become Christians. In my family, there are Christian Cherokees back to the Revolutionary War times. In spite of the white man. And in spite of us, people become members of the church. We have to overcome the credibility gap if there is one in our lives. Christians must be the good news before they can share the good news. Again, like, like Ezra, know it, do it, teach it, and keep living it. <clears throat> to put it another way, when love is seen, the message is heard. And conversely, when love is not seen, the message is not taken seriously. <clears throat> I have a, another quote here from a man named Van Auken. <clears throat> the best argument for Christianity is Christians. Their joy, their certainty, their completeness... But the strongest argument against Christianity is also Christians. When they are somber and joyless, when they are self-righteous and smug in complacent consecrations, when they are narrow and repressive, then Christianity dies a thousand deaths. So as we look at these hindrances, we understand there are some forces which hinder our effectiveness in evangelism today. And we have considered those, and again, our purpose for doing so is not to excuse ourselves, for no matter what the circumstances here on earth, the Lord's plan for reaching the lost is still the same. He depends on you and me. But perhaps by recognizing these hindrances we will be more open to other evangelistic options which take these problems into consideration. And we have considered some points related to one of those options <clears throat> called, by some, relationship evangelism, sometimes called lifestyle evangelism, or <clears throat> as I styled it in an outline, evangelism made personal. And again, please take it personally. We are the children of light. If you would go with me to Ephesians chapter 5. <clears throat> Starting at verse 1, Ephesians chapter 5. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. 
Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Some years ago, I, I did an adaptation of the Beatitudes and I called it Nine Rules for Blissful Living. And I would like to incorporate some of those rules as we bring this to a conclusion uh, today. This is rule number five on the list. It is called, Don't Give Them What They Deserve. Don't Give Them What They Deserve. Adapted from, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Matthew 5 and 7. To show mercy is to spare the infliction of a punishment that is due to another. How many times has God done that for you and for me just today? How many times will he do that for us this week? Consider Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 10. And consider also Ephesians 4, 17 through 19, where we have Satan's strategy for our destruction. First of all, don't rely on the futility of your own thinking. Life without God is intellectually frustrating, useless, and meaningless. Satan tries to come then at those who do have understanding of the things of the Lord, and he tries to cloud that understanding. And if successful, that will lead to a condition called sclerocardia or hardening of the heart. The inability to feel what we should feel. And because we need to feel, well, we might do just what the world around us is doing, immerse ourselves in sensuality. And that leads to our eternal destruction. But in Ephesians 4.20, Paul says, you've not learned Christ that way. You did not come to know Christ this way. That is not the way you learned Christ. In Christ there are no tricks, just the truth. Ephesians 4.21 Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. John 14.26 The old self, that old man, was the dupe of the devil's mind games. Verse 22 the new man, the renewed man, 
Anineo in the Greek sounds like the word anew. To renovate, to reform, to renew. The difference when someone truly cares about you. Put on the new man. Ephesians 4.24 The new self created to be like God. Not the image referred to in Genesis 1.26 or 1 Thessalonians 5.23. Not referring to the indwelling of Christ, but rather the result that is the fruit or the type of the person that the Spirit can mold you into being in the image of Christ if we allow Him to. We're not referring to an essentially new nature that replaces the old one. That is, we do not lose the ability to sin. Sometimes a young person, we express concern about the people, the person that they're looking at perhaps considering to marry. And we see some serious spiritual flaws. And they say, but I can change him. I can change her. No, people do not change, essentially. They do not. People can get better, or people can get worse. They are still the same person, essentially. But what makes all the difference is this renewal that we can have in regard to the Spirit working in our lives. Positionally, we become dead to sin, Romans 6, 5-7, when we are justified. Notice the past tense parallel in Colossians 3, 9 and 10. Experientially, we become alive to God, Romans 6, 8 through 11, as we walk in sanctification as a Christian, Romans 6, 12 and 13. We do not let sin reign in our body, our life. We do not give our body to Satan into his hands as an instrument for his wickedness. Instead, daily, we make the decision to give ourselves into God's hands. We accept Christ's blood for our cleansing. We refuse to let sin reign in our life. We put ourselves in the service of God. Our whole being, all the capacities of that being, that is what we put on. Satan's dominion has been overcome. Romans 6, 5-7. A new ruler now controls your life. The old man was doing hard time as a slave of an uncaring, cruel, and evil taskmaster. The new man volunteers to let God reign. In so doing, he exchanges the bondage of sin for the dominion of righteousness. Romans 5.21 He chooses a new mindset. The old man of sin, he set his mind on the flesh how he might gratify the desires of the flesh. The new man in Christ sets his mind on the things of the Spirit. Romans 8, 6, Colossians 3, 1 and 2. The world that we live in is in darkness. It is corrupt. It is crumbling and crashing down to hell. We are encompassed. We are enticed. We are presented at every turn with occasion for sordid and base thinking. We must choose every day to put on this new man. This is our whole wardrobe. As Paul urged them in Ephesians 4, like he urged them in Colossians, choosing daily to put on the new man means also 
choosing to put off the old man. Like an old pair of blue jeans, I was tempted this morning to wear the, my favorite pair, but they also happen to have a hole right here this morning. But this is kind of how it is. They're like your friend. You know them. You're comfortable in them. They, they're not presentable, but they sure are comfortable. And neighbor in the context of Ephesians 4 is, is really in the context of your fellow Christian, but it affects all these other things we've been talking about because it does not mean that we act differently toward non-Christians than we act toward Christians. Are we attired in an attitude of the world when we are with members of it? No. And verse 26 of Ephesians 4, In your anger, or be angry, sin not. Does being Christ-like mean being about as interesting as a lifeless lump of mashed potatoes without even any butter or salt? Is the Christian life to be a dispassionate life? Yes, our emotions were nailed to the cross. But our Lord does not want Melba milk toasts any more than he wants Stanley Stern Stoics. Emotions are to be purified in Christ. Some anger is righteous. Some anger is unrighteous. Even righteous anger, when misappropriated and mishandled, can become sin. Therefore, when that sin appears, we have to rein it in. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. As you look at Ephesians 4.26, please take into consideration that it is a citation from Psalm 4, 4-5. through 5. We will not take the time here to elaborate, but the context needs to be borne out so that you have a full and proper understanding of what Ephesians 4.26 is talking about. But we do not want to give the devil a toehold. He is falling down in an avalanche of doom. We cannot afford to give him one inch of room. Every step we allow him closer to us increases the likelihood that he will grab us and pull us down, clawing and screaming right along with him. Get off that road. Stay off that road. The bridge is out. We'll fall to our death. As you look at Ephesians 4, 28-32, there is plenty of really re rewarding, really good stuff on the right road. Consider Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. Keep choosing these things. Keep thinking these thoughts. Whatever is true, meaning real, genuine, therefore worthy of praise. Whatever is honorable, meaning venerable, dignified, not frivolous, important. Whatever is just, meaning approved, and commended by the word of God, above board, no tricks, nothing shady, nothing questionable. Whatever is pure, the word is hagiasmos, it's a refiner's term. 
The process of sanctification. Dross removed each time. Good remains. Good gets refined. More beauty. More strength. Chaste. Innocent. Blameless. Whatever is lovely, that which is acceptable, amicable, does not lead to conflict, but contributes to harmony. Whatever is gracious, meaning reputable, favorable, optimistic. Whatever is virtuous, of worth, valuable. Whatever is praiseworthy, a life so lived that it can't help but be appreciated. Such is the new life in Christ Jesus. A new life with new goals, a new life with new conduct, a new life made new each day, a new life lived well, a new life which is greatly enjoyed, not just endured, a new life with a new ruler whom we are ever glad to serve. Rule number six from the nine rules. No good equals all evil, and some good equals still some evil. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Matthew chapter 5, verse 8. Pure means unmixed, that is, unadulterated, or undiluted, as the case might be. How much pigment goes into a gallon of paint base to affect a color? Does anyone want me to set a glass of water up here and pour just let that one drop of gasoline go into that glass? Can't see it? Brethren, we cannot mix it up with the world in the sense of that and come out unstained. Connect Matthew 5 and 8 with the thought in Matthew 5 and 3. Consider Psalm 139. There's nowhere you can hide from the Lord. Consider Psalm 24, 3 and 4. Consider Psalm 32, verse 2. Do you want to see God? Hebrews 12, 14. Revelation 22, 4. And you know, there are other Beatitudes besides the ones that we find in Matthew 5. Jesus said some, others than that, such as in Matthew 16, 17. Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this unto you, but my Father who is in heaven. Are you listening with the Spirit? If you are, then you will hear it. And what is the question Peter was answering? Who do you say that I am? Jesus asked. And Peter gave the answer that we should give. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Another beatitude in Matthew 24, 46. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. So doing what? Staying awake. Watching. And waiting with all preparedness. Rule number seven from the list. Be just like your father. Be just like your father. We look at a little 
little boy and we say, he's just like his father. And sometimes we say that with a smile on our face and sometimes we don't. But in this case, it's a very desirable thing. Be just like your father. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Matthew 5 and 9. Every statement of Scripture must be understood by others on the same subject. Consider Romans chapter 8, verse 16. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. You can consider Romans 12, 14 through 18. James 3, 17 with this also. And consider from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 14. Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. Thank you for the opportunity of being with you. I've appreciated it, and I hope that we are edified, and the smarting of our toes will help us to walk better. Thank you.